Go ahead and flip to Jonah 4, if you haven't already. Jonah chapter 4. Um, we, in week 1, chapter 1, we talked about descent, Jonah's descent. And uh, chapter 2 was death. And then chapter 3 was this concept of repentance that is exemplified through the Ninevites and their turning away from their sin uh, and, and repenting. And then chapter 4 is about grace. And I think it's a lesson on God's grace that we need to learn and apply as we'll see. So let's go ahead and read Jonah 4, 1 through 10. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, Do you have a good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head, so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which, you, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father and most holy God, we ask and pray that as we look at your word that your spirit might grant to us and an immeasurable portion of your grace. We, like Jonah, can oftentimes be stupefied about the relationship between justice and mercy. And we, of course, readily admit that this is our own foolish thinking, and it's certainly not your fault. Help us to understand the depths of your mercy and the depths of your grace. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So we've come now to the final chapter of the book of Jonah, and we're going to learn a lesson about the grace of God. But as we'll see... The abrupt ending of the book is meant to take us, the readers, on a journey of self-reflection as we consider what was obvious to God, but not so obvious to Jonah. Uh, Before we summarize our text, I want to set the stage, as it were, to the context of the book um, as a reminder. You may recall a few weeks ago that I made this comparison. It was a brief comparison, a comparison I really didn't even highlight. I just sort of said it. Uh, But it was a comparison of Jonah to Noah and the flood narrative. Um, I made, again, that comment in passing, but I really want to um, develop that idea real quick because I think it does kind of help us anchor um, the narratival themes that we have in front of us, which should, if we're careful, help us apply it to our own lives, as it were. So Jonah's name, if you recall, his name means dove. And of course, if you recall, Noah sent a dove to check and see if the waters had resided. In both stories, we have destruction. Um, 
One obviously of complete worldwide flood destruction and one impending destruction on the Ninevites and also involved with the animals. It's interesting that a couple times in the Jonah story there's this odd emphasis on the animals um, and that's actually the, the last words that the Lord uses there at the end of chapter 4. <clears throat> so in the Noah story the earth is flooded and everything's destroyed um, except for save Noah and his family and the animals that he brought onto the ark. In the Jonah narrative the world, if you will, that is Nineveh, is saved, and again, the animals are involved, and they're spared this time as well. The fish, then, is like an ark. The fish is like another ark. Jonah is sent out of it into the world. God's grace must prevail, and God is always moving the world towards his grace, each step of the way, from Abraham on to the Lord Jesus himself, and on to us, the church, and our call to do the same type of thing. Like Noah's day, there is water and there is wind, emphasized in the story of Jonah. There are 40 days as well. 40 days before Nineveh is destroyed, 40 days when Noah was on the ark. There's also a lot of anthropomorphism um, which in, in the text, which gives us, um, it describes God's relenting, God's grieving. Uh, if you recall back in Genesis, it grieved the heart of God that man was so wicked and constantly pursuing wickedness. And here it's the same type of thing. Um, anytime the writers would describe God in human terms, it was meant to give us a look at the heart of God. We're supposed to see the heart of God in the Jonah story and as compared to the heart of Jonah. This fish ark is Assyria, as we've already noted before. Um, Jonah is protected by the fish just like Assyria is going to protect Israel during their exile. Remember that Assyria was going to come and take the northern kingdom captive only just a two or three decades after Jonah's ministry. So Jonah's story is another Noah story. Um, Assyria, the nation, is being prepared to house Israel in the belly of her political ship. That's how we should read the story. Like Jonah, Israel is going to be tossed into Gentile seas but God will, in fact, protect them. So all of this is God's protection until Christ, who is the great ark, can fully and finally bring people into permanent shelter from the storm. That's who Jesus is, a greater Noah. He's a greater ark. Everything that was a shadow comes to fruition in Christ. So the problem, as we shall see, is that Jonah, Jonah is far too um, proud to deal with such absurdities. After I mean, that's absurd. Assyria is going to protect Israel and exile. They're the enemy. It's, it's mind-boggling and absurd to him. God is, is clearly wrong, so he thinks. But for us, as we read our Bibles, we know history moves from wrath to grace. God's desire isn't to just destroy the planet. God's desire is to heal the planet, to heal the nations. So history is moving from wrath to grace, but Jonah doesn't see it at all. He has no idea. So let's summarize our text. And you can follow along if you like. But in verse 1, we get Jonah's immediate response. His immediate response to God's grace and his mercy given to the Ninevites. Jonah is greatly displeased and he is angry. <laughs> is that shocking? Um, he's greatly displeased and angry. Jonah's anger at God's grace being given to the Ninevites, follow this, surpassed God's own anger at the Ninevites' sin. 
Okay, Jonah's anger surpassed God's anger toward Jonah's anger at God's grace is um, surpassing God's anger at the Ninevites. So there's double standards. There's hypocrisy. There's wrongheadedness, as we'll see. So Jonah responds to God in verse two, and in Hebrew there are 39 words of complaint. Um, Jonah is going to give 39 words of complaint in Hebrew, and actually later God's going to give 39 words as well. Um, he cites Exodus 34, uh, w- describing this beautiful picture of who God is. He accuses God of having this surplus of hesed in, in Hebrew, which is God's loving kindness, or more accurately, it's his covenant faithfulness. There's, God's just too kind. He's too faithful to his covenant. If you're keeping score at home, Exodus 34, Jonah leaves off the latter half of the passage, which says, Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. In other words, if you don't like what you read in Scripture, just ignore it. (laughs) If you don't like what you see in Scripture, just ignore it. That's, by the way, how Satan reads his Bible too. That's not advice from me. (laughs) Okay? Note the sarcasm. (laughs) Side note, we should always read the Bible with enough humility to always conclude each and every time that there's still some vestige of inconsistency in our lives that the Spirit of God has to root out. That's how you should always read your Bible. Don't just read your Bible to ascertain facts. Read your Bible not to create an image of God that you like and find more palatable. Read your Bible so that you know that the Spirit has more work to do on you. I think it was R.C. Sproul Jr. that that once said something like, um, every time you read the Bible, just remember that you're the sinner in the story. (laughs) You're not the hero, that sort of thing. So we see um, Jonah's reason for running away, his running to Tarshish. He says he knew God was a gracious God. It's almost kind of funny and laughable to me. See, God, that's why... You didn't destroy these people. I knew it. You're just a gracious God. I just knew it. That's why I ran away. Kind of, kind of a funny temper tantrum. In other words, he says, of course you'll extend grace to people who don't deserve it. Of course. That's how you seem to work. Jonah, in the story, wants retribution and he wants punishment for others, not grace and mercy. He wants the grace and mercy of God all to himself. He's not willing to give it to other people. He's a, he's a, he's a, a, a glory monger. He, he wants it for himself, but he doesn't want it for other people. You, maybe you don't know anyone like that. <laughs> or maybe you're like that. We'll see. In verse 3, Jonah, like Elijah, he, he comes to the end of himself. He, he bemoans his life itself, and he begs for death. If you remember Elijah, he had this moment of desperation in 1 Kings 19.4. Um, and, pe- and that was because people weren't believing his preaching. Uh, Elijah's frustrated. He's preaching. Uh, there's no grand revival. There's no, you know, it seems like everyone's against God. Everybody just wants to worship idols. He's the only one. He's depressed. But Jonah, ironically, it's the opposite problem. Jonah is depressed and frustrated unto death because people did believe his preaching. So we have an opposite and ironic um, situation here. But what caused his despondency? The answer is Jonah's one-dimensional view of God. He has a one-dimensional view of God. Death and retribution, in his mind, is the only answer to sin. 
But we know as Christians, what's the only thing that breaks the hardened heart of a sinner? Is it the law? It's the grace of God, not the law of God. The law of God condemns, but it's the grace of God that melts the ice of someone's heart. That's what we know. That's what we believe. So for, uh, Jonah's got this whole forgiveness for me, not for thee type of mindset. That's his problem. He's too proud to be guided by God's sovereignty. Okay, He's too proud to be guided by the sovereignty of God. God sovereignly chose to forgive the Ninevites. He's too proud to acknowledge that, even when it means protection in the midst of national judgment. So God responds in verse 4, and he asks a pertinent question. And I love how God asks this. He says, do you have good reason to be angry? Are you justified in your anger? Do you really think you have good reason to respond to me that way? In other words, you're angry, God says, but, but are you justified in your anger? Are you sure that you want to view this situation in this way? So the Lord is obviously patient with Jonah, and he's patient with the Ninevites, but Jonah is blinded by his own poor theology to see it. So what does Jonah do in verse 5? Jonah throws a temper tantrum, and he heads out east of the city. Um, The text says that he sets up shop for 40 days. He makes a shelter or a booth which Sakoth in Hebrew should remind you of the Feast of Tabernacles, which is you know, a normal thing to do. Some wood, kind of a covering, perhaps some plants, shade. He sets up a booth, and he's shaded from the sun. So guess why? guess why he does this? So he can get a front row seat to Nineveh's impending disaster. Jonah's got 40 days to watch it unfold. He goes east of the city, frustrated with their repentance, goes east of the city, watches it, front row seat. All right, Lord, 40 days, let's blow this joint. That's his mindset. Now, in God's prodding grace, he causes a plant to grow. It's a simple grace, but it's a grace nonetheless, in order to provide Jonah more shade. Verse 6. So Jonah, pay, pay attention to the narrative here. Jonah built this rickety shelter with minimal shade to watch Nineveh get Jonah's version of justice. God provides a more suitable shade so Jonah could watch God's grace outshine the whole process. And another moment of grace. Now, this is the type of grace that won't let pride stand in the way. God appoints a worm to destroy the plant the very next morning, verse 7. Now it's like God's just messing with him. (laughs) Four times God appoints something as a means of grace and judgment to prod Jonah into deeper grace. The fish, the plant, the worm. And now in verse 8, God appoints a scorching east wind. Um, Wind from the east. If you're in Israel, wind from the east is not a pleasant experience because to the east is the desert. Hot air, scorching wind, blowing. It's already bad enough when it's hot out and the sun's beating on you. It's even worse when when the air is hot and it's not a cool breeze. So God appoints the wind. This is obviously extremely discomforting. Jonah, once again, in a moment of self-pity, says, I would just rather die. I would just rather die. He can't seem to win, which is good, because winning from the perspective of a stiff-necked, finite person is rarely just and it's rarely good. I mean, think how many times you wanted God to give you your way. (laughs) When, in hindsight, nah, that was probably not the best thing. 
So, we should know that no one wins when men try to create a God in their own image. That's what Jonah's doing. He's creating a God in his own image. God, why don't you function the way I think you should function? Why don't you perform the way I think you should I think you should smite these Ninevites. How many of us have shaped a God in our own image? What a terrible thing. So Jonah got his 39 words of complaint. God's going to get his 39 words of response. What God emphasizes in response is, jo- is his total control over the created order. Okay? Jonah is narrow-minded. He's solely fixated on, on vengeance towards the Ninevites. And God is fixated on himself being the absolute nexus of all things in creation. God holds it all together. He holds the plant and the worm and the fish, Jonah's heartbeat, and all the Ninevites. He holds it all together. So God asks again in verse 9, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? Twice God said it now. Do you really have good reason? Think long and hard. And Jonah thinks he does. He still thinks he does. So God points out the problem in verse 10. Look, you had compassion for a plant, a small, seemingly insignificant grace which gave comfort to you. Something Jonah didn't even have to work for. He built the booth in his anger. God brings a plant to shade him, a gourd. There's debate on what exactly it was, but it's neither here nor there. Why can't Jonah extend the same compassion to them? See, if Jonah can have the comfort of God's small grace, why wouldn't Nineveh be able to have the comfort of God's grace too? And knowing what we know from 2 Kings, Jonah wanted Jeroboam II, the king at the time, to expand Israel's territory. Okay, The good and necessary assumption being that Jonah, Jonah absolutely exhibited nationalistic fervor through expansionism and exceptionalism. Something we'll talk about in a minute. Okay, J- Jonah was clearly wanted Israel to dominate the world scene. And he was willing to do whatever it takes. Okay, um, side note, Jonah's anger toward Nineveh is no different than us launching tomahawks into the Middle East blindly. Expansionism, military ops, anger. Side note, something for later. (laughs) So Jonah... Jonah, the problem for Jonah was he was blinded to the grace of God in his life, and thus he was unwilling to grant it to others. Bottom line. He wanted all the grace of God. Jonah probably sang some gospel music on the way. All right, I'm going to preach this message, and they're not going to repent. They're not going to give in. They're going to stick their fists in the air, and God's going to smite them, and I'm going to be so excited about it, so happy. He's probably singing Amazing Grace. How great, how great is that? God opened my eyes, but he's going to smite these people because they deserve it. And he doesn't see. He doesn't see. In other words, Jonah is really this anti-hero. He's an anti-hero in order to challenge Israel to consider the helpless in the world. He's, that's us. So in fact, God says, look, look, Jonah, these people don't know their left hand from their right hand, which is a euphemism of saying they have no sense of order and justice in their life. They'd have no idea. And in Deuteronomy, God would tell Israel, don't go to the left or the right. Walk in my path, follow my law, obey me. Don't, don't, go, don't compromise to the left or compromise to the right. These people are so far gone, they have no idea. They're altogether broken. 
the animals, their justice system. Um, they're so far gone, they, have no, they don't know where to turn. Their entire social order is in shambles. The only way to fix it is my grace, God says. Sure, they, they deserve my wrath. They deserve retribution. Who doesn't? But am I not the God you said I was? That part about patience and loving kindness, am I not permitted to extend forgiveness to undeserving sinners like you? That's God's last final word. It's interesting, Jonah ends with a question. I don't know of any other text. I didn't dig into this, but it's not a normal way to end a book. It's unresolved. It's unresolved, and I think it's intentional because we're Jonah. How do we respond? So let's apply it. One of the great, greatest temptations, okay, one of the greatest temptations when experiencing the grace of God is for undeserving sinners to forget that they are undeserving sinners. That's a great, one of the greatest temptations for undeserving sinners, people who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, people who have, who have the atonement of Christ reckoned to their accounts, imputed to them. They have confessed that Jesus is Lord. Their hearts have been transformed by the grace of God. One of the first temptations is to forget that you are an undeserving sinner. Jonah is absolutely the poster child for this amnesiac condition. It doesn't take long, children, listen. It doesn't take long for us to take the blessings of God, presume upon them repeatedly, not give thanks to God, not consider His grace, but just enjoy the blessing, and quickly turn them into a noose of our own, desire, own demise. Very, very quickly can we do that. See, American Christians and their version of American exceptionalism is precisely something that I think we should apply and consider from this passage. As Christians, and no time is better than right now, do we blindly assume that our nation is somehow the greatest on earth? I go to Africa and tell them, stop thinking we're the greatest. Ideally, principally, due process, you know, freedom of speech, like all these things that are, are biblical concepts, Ideally, yes, it's a, it's a, it was a, it was, we'll see outside of repentance if we can turn it around, but it, it, they are good ideas, but we don't have it figured out. I mean, our, na- our cities are on fire, injustice floods the streets, it, like our social order is like crumbling. It, it is. So, so should we assume that God has shown us favor for the glorious end of our own pomp and circumstance? Deuteronomy repeatedly, don't think that your might and your strength got you this. Fathers and husbands, uh, all of us in this room, don't think that God's grace in your life was for the end of your glory. It's not. So the answer, of course, is no. None of those things we should assume. And yet, I think this is what pietism does, and it's what pietistic Christians spend their time doing. We tote around this idea of American exceptionalism as if our might and our strength and our brilliance and our creativity got us any of it. It didn't. The grace of God upholds much of those ideas of liberty that we like to think we have, but have course slowly lost you know it's like parents that your your kids god didn't give them to you for you <laughs> and you alone 
uh, children, someday you're going to grow and you're going to have a family. And that's God's calling on your life is to, to, to pursue him and whatever um, thing he gives you to do in your corner of the garden world. But it's not about you. It's not about any of us. So in spite of, in spite of our, our beleaguered history, for example, of injustice towards blacks, in spite of our breakneck speed of embracing statism, in spite of our slaughter of the preborn, in spite of all of this, I think we can agree, God has chosen to spare us from something far worse than we could ever imagine. I mean, we deserve far worse than what Nineveh had coming to them had Jonah got his way. So instead of having the humility to repent of the injustice, Repent of trusting in our chariots and politicians and horses and B-52s. We'd rather just play along, take what we can get, and peace out ASAP. See, this abrupt ending of Jonah, I think, is an invitation to deal with the fact that we are not participating in a stalemate religion. It's not what we're participating in. It is not as though God's hands are tied by a recalcitrant prophet or pagan nation's God's hands are not tied. Nor does God struggle in history, limping along, try to figure out how to sort the mess out. But that's the version of Christianity most of us grew up on. There's no Trinitarian confusion as it pertains to justice and mercy. The Godhead is quite capable of handling things. And the remarkable thing about Jonah's story is that God is ever so patient with him. I mean, he's so off base. He's off kilter. His bloodlust of retribution towards others has caused a blinders to fall on him, and he can't even see the grace of God given to him, which is for the means of grace of God being given to others. So I think we're supposed to laugh at Jonah's descent into rebellion. I think we're supposed to chuckle at that. Because there's a lot of irony in the text. You know, he went down to Joppa. He went down into the boat. I mean, he went down. And then God sent him down further to Sheol. And I, and, and I think we should soberly laugh at it. And I also think we should be skeptical, skeptical, skeptical excuse me, about his ostensible repentance in chapter 2. Because there's some things that seem to be missing. And then I think, I think we should be shocked at, at Nineveh's repentance. I think we should be somewhat surprised by that. But then I think we should also find ourselves standing outside the city with Jonah broken before the Lord. Because instead of a vindictive, spiteful attitude towards those who are not in the covenant, toward the world, I think we should probably have a demeanor like Jesus did. Because Jesus, as you know, he was crucified outside the city to the east. Jesus gave himself. It was humility, not arrogance. In fact, if you recall, um, the Bible highlights Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. I mean, if if I were Jesus, right, if it was me, or, you know, if you were him, we could say, look at these guys. I mean, the the religious leaders are corrupt. They crucified our Lord. They deserve to go down in flames. And they did, actually. But not before Jesus gave of himself, emptied himself, served to the point of giving his life as a ransom for many. So like the story of Job, God teaches Jonah about the unbelievable graces that he pours out in the, in the created order. Jonah 
ought to have been dumbfounded and also kind of oddly exuberant. Who can know the mind of God? Not Jonah, not us. Yet it is the Lord who patiently walks with Jonah, keeping his temper tantrum from going full meltdown, teaching him about the inexorable movement of history from wrath to grace. So there's this element of escapism too in chapter 4. And it, along with uh, the exceptionalism problem, tends to be the cousin of stalemate religion. See, stalemate religion assumes that God is always at an impasse with man. He's always at an impasse. It, it assumes that history is this constant bottleneck of, as God tries to figure out how to have victory in an impossible situation. That's stalemate religion. So that's pessimillennialism. See, those who believe that God and Satan are, are in a yin-yang situation believe that victory in history is impossible and that Christ has to come and he has to quickly open the escape hatch so we can zap out of here. See, Jonah, for whatever reason, fell into a stalemate religion because he assumed that God was wrong. He assumed that God isn't sovereign over the affairs of the world. He assumed that God's grace was for himself and not for others. And thus, there was this irreconcilable conflict between the two. The impasse isn't God and what to do with sinners. The impasse is Jonah and what to do with the grace of God. And this bore the fruit of exceptionalism and that he, he believed that God's grace was only for his people and not those outside the covenant. And this bore the fruit of escapism. Pay attention. Twice Jonah asked to die. That's an escapist mentality. Okay? Um, things were too difficult to bear. The, the justice was utterly intolerable. Or lack of justice, as it were. See, God was delving out his God was delving out his grace on pagans. How could he do that? Twice. That's Jonah's response. Lord, just take my life. In fact, if you look at verse 8, look at verse 8 real quick. It says he became faint and begged with all his soul to die. Jonah should have been a man begging for the salvation of the Ninevites. But instead, he's begging for his own life to be taken. This is a man who is desperate. He doesn't see a way forward. And I'll just say it. The American church right now is Jonah, and it's frustrating and sad to watch. No one, it seems, or very few, has blueprints for the policing problem. All these things pop up because statism cannot hold it together. It will never be able to. The Lord Jesus holds it together. No one has plans for dealing with, with the ultimate problem of statism. The, the church remains committed to acquiescing to whatever the state says. And by and large, there is no real blueprint to get out of the stalemate situation. So Christians, though, Christians who look at culture as a stalemate thing do so because their pessimistic eschatology teaches them a stalemate theology. Who's going to win in history? Can we not declare the Lord Jesus? We do have the most potent message on the planet, the grace of God. It's the grace of God that I am what I am, Paul says. See, in Christ, we have the seemingly irreconcilable 
reconciled. In Christ, we have the seemingly impossible made possible. In Christ, we have the seemingly unjust made just. Through the work of Christ, God, according to Romans 3, is both just and the justifier of the ones who put their faith in Christ. So this grand reconciliation of man's constant battle with things like dialectics and, and, and injustice and ethics gives us the foundation necessary to build a victorious world which reflects the righteousness of God. So listen, in Christ there's no stalemate. There is only victory. Children, you do not serve a God who is unable to deal with whatever it is you think is happening around your world. Men, women, we do not serve a God who does not know what it's like to go through what you're going through. In Christ there is no stalemate, there is only victory. In Christ's atonement, God is just. He lays the sins of your sins, He lays the sins of the world on the shoulders of Christ, so Christ could swallow them up in death. He is also the justifier. He takes the atonement of Christ and He applies it to you, declares you not guilty, declares you fully righteous, but only in Christ. So there's no need for escapism. Christ died and Christ was raised. The victory is ours. There's no need for boasting in this idea of exceptionalism. Christ is all and He is enough. The justice and mercy of God is most vividly displayed in Christ. And thus, this gospel is the only true ending to the book of Jonah. We, th we read it and we, it's unresolved, but it's actually resolved in Christ. We don't need to escape. We don't need to pound our chests in exceptionalism. Um, we need to be humbled before the Lord and serve Him with gladness. And please, for the love of all things, our job, never forget this, is to be grateful grace givers. That's the huge omission of Jonah's life, which means it should be the pursuit of our lives. Grateful grace givers to yourselves in Christ, to your your spouse, to your friend, to your children, to your sibling, to your parents, you name it. We're grateful grace givers. It's the grace of God and the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, right? So don't forget that. Let's pray. Father, you've been good to us. You have demonstrated um, your grace and mercy in the cross. And absolutely, um, we are the first in line to admit that oftentimes we have forgotten that. We have forgotten it. And we have let envy or covetousness or, 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 or this um, bloodthirsty retribution to be our attitude for, uh, excuse me, towards others. When it ought to be a very simple formula. You've given us grace. We need to give it to others. Lord, if we would be as patient with others as you are with us. If we would be as kind to others as you have been kind to us. And Father, we are a nation that is so headlong and steeped into statism. And it's obviously breaking up around us. And I pray that your grace would be on full display. That your church would not fall into the same trap as seemingly is the case as Jonah, but would instead remind, be remembered, I should say, that, that the blessings of God have been given to us for your glory, not ours.
So help us to, to know and learn from Jonah. Help us to know your grace, learn from your grace, and be immersed in it each day. In Christ's name, amen.